This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotny. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode number 503 and we are debuting a new feature called IAQ Radio Plus Classics. Our first classic is a show we did with Dr. Harriet Amon on 6-22 of 2012. We have remixed the show and added a video transcript. We hope you enjoy the new feature. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at healthyindoors.com. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. I'd also like to welcome our newest sponsors, the Restoration Industry Association, RIA, the granddaddy of Restoration Industry Associations. Welcome on board. How, glad to have you. And our newest sponsor is AEML Labs in uh, southwest Flor- Southeast Florida, down in the uh, Fort Lauderdale area. They have free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee. Welcome on board. Looking forward to a nice long relationship with AEML Labs and RIA. Also, one other final special announcement. Dr. Chin Yang and Dr. Ralph Moon, both have been uh, guests on the show in the past, are doing an advanced mold and micro inspection sampling and testing course in uh, Orlando, Florida, Friday, May 11th. So that's next week. For those of you in the Florida area, you can find out more information by emailing kevin.pang, P-A-N-G, at prestige-em.com. And now let's get started with our remixed and uh, added video transcript of a great show we had with Dr. Harriet Amon. Our guest today is... For our 250th show, Dr. Harriet Amon. She is currently the principal of Amon Toxicology Consulting and affiliate associate professor at the School of Public Health and Community Medicine at the University of Washington. She is a diplomat of the American Board of Toxicology since 1989. And up to 2006, she was the senior toxicologist at the Air Quality Program for the Washington State Department of Ecology. And prior to that, served as the senior toxicologist at the Office of Environmental Health Assessment Services for the Washington State Department of Health. Before her service with the state of Washington, she participated in the U.S. EPA's hazardous air pollutants team that was developing guidance for non-cancer risk assessment. She has also developed several reference concentrations for the HAPs. Prior to service in the federal government, she taught cell human vertebrate and comparative animal physiology at the college and university level for 14 years. She also served as the vice chair of the bioaerosols committee for the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists from 1997 to 2003 and authored the chapter on microbial VOCs in the ACGIH book, Bioaerosols Assessment and Control. Since then, she's contributed to several other book chapters in several different publications, including the AIHA Green Book. She was also a part of the National Institute of Medicine study, for Damp Buildings and Health, and we really are happy to have her here. We've, all right, Dr. Armand, do we have you on the line? Hello. All right, we've got you. Okay, well, let's, I wanted to uh, thank you first for joining us, and then we always like to start with a little kind of uh, try to figure out what, what got people involved in this, in this business early in your career. You, you taught some high school and then uh, for quite a few years at the college level, always had a, a strong interest in physics. Curious how this led to becoming a, a toxicologist and an expert on bioaerosols and the indoor air quality. Well, I, I fell in love with physics on the high school level and then uh, entered that program at the University of Dayton because I was interested in how things work. 
And uh, after I, I then uh, went into the program of education because I was advised I might make a good teacher. And I taught um, physical science, took a course at night in physiology, and learned that all the physics and chemistry that I had studied in college really came together in a very, very interesting way for biological systems. I then pursued further education in physiology. And uh, after teaching that at all different levels, I joined the US EPA in their, um, essentially their air quality program. It, at that time, it was called the Environmental Criteria and Assessment Office. Now it's called the National Center for Environmental Assessment. And what what did you do there? I, I guess you did uh, toxicology assessments of, of outdoor air quality issues? Right. Um, the office is the one that provides the scientific background for uh, the regulatory portion of the air program that uh, presents the, um, the standard for outside air for criteria pollutants such as fine particles and carbon monoxide and the other four. And then during my time there, we began the indoor air quality part uh, when we, about 50 scientists, including me, um, wrote the preliminary assessment of indoor air quality for Title IV and Congress. And so um, I then became very interested in, in indoor air quality as well as maintaining my interest in uh, outdoor quality and, of course, the toxicology of people breathing the air. Um, one of the things I usually say is that you can't not breathe, so you breathe whatever's in the air and it will affect you. And that was the, the, the National Ambient Air Quality Standards are also a part of that group's responsibility, as I understand. And then you mentioned the, the yeah. six uh, parameters. And I'm just curious, we talked a little before the show, and there was a, an awful lot of uh, research that goes into that. And, and I'm just curious if you could maybe give our listeners a little overview of your thoughts on the NAAQS. Well, the Clean Air Act requires that for the criteria pollutants, which are those six air pollutants, that there must be standards which are health-based and that the standards uh, can only take other issues like economic into consideration in the implementation. The standard itself has to be health-based. And because there's a lot of research going on, the, um, and a lot of it is sponsored through funds through EPA and other agencies, that information has to be evaluated every five years and if a new standard is deemed to be uh, feasible, then the uh, administrator proposes that standard and it is then evaluated. Um, in order to get there, first of all, there, the criteria documents are written, which summarizes all the information that has come to light in the previous years since the last standard, and then uh, that information is provided to the regulatory arm, the Office of Air Quality Planning and Standards, and they then do essentially a risk assessment, uh, a very detailed risk assessment, and propose standards to the administrator. Um, we have tightened the standard for fine particulates. We can summarize that as soot, primarily the particles from combustion, and we have tightened that over the years. Um, the most recent tightening was um, in 2007. We're due for a new standard, and um, this should, in fact, be a more stringent standard, which is then health protective for even the most vulnerable, which is what the Clean Air Act requires. Okay. Cliff? I, I have two uh, questions. Uh, would national ambient air quality standards consider carbon dioxide? Uh, you know, have they ever considered adding that to the list? Um, you know, we have all this, you know, climate change and global warming and so on and so forth that's attributed to it. I just wondered whether they would add that as the seventh. 
Well, certainly the, the national ambient air quality standards are national because the contaminants that they consider are deemed to be ubiquitous. That is, they are everywhere and therefore can be subject to a national standard. And those pollutants distribute across the country and national standards are warranted. For the hazardous air pollutants, they are regulated at their source and are not nationally regulated. Um, carbon dioxide, while it does play a large role in a lot of processes on our planet, in itself does not have sufficiently serious health effects such as death and illness at concentrations that we encounter. And because the, the criteria pollutants are health-based standards, it has not been considered for that. Okay, thanks. Uh, I guess my other question is, you were one of the editors and authors of the ACGIH 1999 bioaerosols book. Why did ACGIH decide to put so much effort into publishing a book on bioaerosols? Well, ACGIH, its purpose is to uh, do analysis of air pollutants, particularly those that affect workers. And after the indoor air quality programs became established in a number of different agencies, among those contaminants that seem to be affecting people's health in the indoor air were those biological contaminants that are produced by living organisms that grow within usually damp or wet indoor spaces. There's, there are other aspects where bioaerosols come in, for instance, in the metalworking industry, where you use water as a coolant, and that water is often contaminated with biological organisms such as bacteria and mold. But at that time, in the, the late 90s, there was sufficient concern that health effects uh, could be resulting from those biological agents that ACGIH felt that the attention needed to be focused on that and that there were uh, ways in which that these health effects could be looked at. And so they talked about sampling. They talked about actually analysis before they talked about sampling if you're going to do that kind of environmental assessment, you always want to know what you're going to do with the data that you get, and you want to make sure that what you are sampling and how you are sampling can get you to answers and not just some numbers that you can't interpret. Thank you. Uh, you, you were um, a, an editor of ACGIH, but you also helped, uh, you wrote one of the chapters, I believe, and also helped with several others. And there was a, a chapter on fungal toxins and glucans. And I, I was curious, how are fungal toxins and bacterial toxins different? And, and why does that matter when thinking about the, the potential or possible health effects of living or working in damp buildings? Right, so... What we're, what we're talking about is what we breathe. We're talking about inhalation. So we want to be concerned about what bacteria or mold can do. And I'm not talking now about infection. I'm talking about exposure that could be either allergic or that could be toxic. And bacteria contain poisons, toxins. Uh, that's the technical term for biological poisons is toxins. Um, they contain them inside their cell wall, and that's why they're called endotoxin, meaning toxin within. And they're not released until the bacterium actually ruptures and pieces of it are in the air and people and others can breathe them. And they have been studied and have been related to a number of different health effects, including such things as hypersensitivity pneumonitis, and to a lesser degree, sarcoidosis, because it hasn't been studied as much. And then some general respiratory issues. Uh, molds, on the other hand, put their, their toxins out into the environment. And the general thinking is that the reason that they put those toxins out there is that they're, um, they're competing with other microbial agents that want the same resources, such as food and water, and uh, habitat 
And when they put those toxins out, they inhibit their competitors and are able to live long and happy lives. Um, so the difference between the endo and exotoxins is that the bacterium has to rupture to release its internal toxins. On the other hand, molds put their toxins out onto the surfaces on which they grow, also into the dust that uh, settles on those surfaces. And that, that dust and uh, the other things that the molds put out then can serve as exposure when that dust is reentrained into the air and people breathe it. So that's the difference. Are, are mycotoxins volatile? I'm sorry? Are they volatile? I mean, the, are we... It, um, they're, they're not gaseous in, in the sense they're, they're uh, not very easily uh, uh, aerosolized. Well, they're aerosolized. They can be aerosolized. But they they are not very volatile as gases go. Um, okay, and and can you touch a little on the glucans because you know, we talked a little bit about this, and I, I think that's something we'll, we'll probably go into in a little more detail later. But I'd like you to kind of set the table for us on that. Okay, let me just go back to the volatile organic. Obviously, they do get into the air because we smell them, and so they're just not quite as volatile as the alcohols, which molds and um, bacteria can also produce. So um, there's a gradation of volatility. The, the, uh, the uh, VOCs, the complex volatile organic compounds that we associate with moldy odors are bigger molecules and uh, have a lower vapor pressure and therefore do not, uh, do not get into the air quite as easily as uh, as alcohols do. Uh, coming to your glucan question, glucan is a structural molecule, actually a series of structural molecules that uh, allow the better part of the cell wall of, of mold cells. And they in themselves have had uh, studies which show that they have health effects, that they are toxicologically, they're irritants, they uh, may be uh, functional in some allergic reactions, but um, they, they support the cell structure and our structural molecules. They have been used to, because all molds produce a variety of glucan, they have been used to try to determine the total mold burden in settled dust, for instance, because we have not yet really devised a means of measuring mold cells like spores or hyphal cells so that we can determine what the total burden is in air. Which our, our means of measurement is, um, is flawed so that we're not able to determine what goes on, for instance, for a 24-hour um, exposure or even an 8-hour exposure in a workplace by just measuring spores. So uh, in a trying to attempt how much total mold burden is there, because all mold cells release glucans when they rupture, measuring glucans is a, a surrogate for trying to measure what mold is there. There's a common term that's, that's used in indoor environment consulting and indoor air quality. That term is MVOC, if you could tell our readers or I'm sorry, your listeners, uh, what MVOC is and what types of organisms produce MVOCs, and then perhaps any thoughts on health issues that might be related to exposures from MVOCs. Well, MVOC stands for microbial volatile organic compounds. So they're organic, meaning that they have carbon chains as their basis, and they range from common metabolites uh, of ordinary, normal, living metabolites such as alcohols and ketones, which are pretty small molecules. And you really shouldn't smell those if there's presence of mold unless you're maybe in a bakery or, or in a bar or in a brewery because – and you can smell alcohol, actually. But the, the mold – 
the most gases that we are concerned with, mostly when we're talking about VOCs, are the musty, moldy kinds of odors. And we have learned a lot about odor and health in the last several decades, not only in relation to moldy smells, but to odors of all kinds. But it has been very difficult to determine whether those odors that are produced by molds are having specific health effects because there are so many other agents that are produced by these biological agents. We can't really tease that out very well. But mold odors are a good indicator for the presence of growing mold because these gases are only produced while the mold is alive and growing. So uh, the mantra we had at the state health department when people called and asked, do I have a moldy house, was that if you see it or smell it, you have it. Then you have to figure out why it's there. It's there because of water. You have to find the water, fix that, and then do the cleaning. So they're a very useful tool, and they've also been used in epidemiology studies such, such as a six-year study by a Finnish researcher on children and asthma, on Dr. Yakawa, to, uh, to be an indicator of the presence of growing mold. Now, I, maybe we could talk a little bit. You mentioned that um, these MVOCs are produced while the, while the molds are growing, and is it only during that period when they're growing that, that you get that musty odor? Obviously, they absorb into things, and then, you know, you still smell it. But it, I've heard different thoughts on that. It's only during the growth period that we have that? Well, you know, all living organisms in their digestive processes produce metabolic gases. We do. Uh, we produce them differentially, and what we um, part of what uh, causes a difference in odors is what we are feeding on. Uh, that's true for all organisms. It's true for mold as well. But they only produce those gases when they're alive. Uh, you know, after organisms are dead, there may be others that come in and start feeding on them and produce odors. Bacteria also produce odors, and medical people have learned to, uh, to uh, identify certain bacteria because they have characteristic odors. But it is a phenomenon of metabolism, and metabolism occurs when organisms are alive. Now, I've got a text. Let me, let me throw this out real quick, a text question from a listener, and we're talking about MVOCs. Um, and he asked, what about MVOCs caused by a rot, fungi, and not molds? Is there any difference? Well, you know... Mold has become a generalized term, sort of like weed for plants that we don't want. Um, so fungi are fungi, and uh, different fungi produce different metabolic gases because they feed on different things. The molds that we're talking about are molds that grow on surfaces. The, the rot fungi actually invade into the, the material that they are uh, they're growing on, uh, so you do have fungi that can uh, work in the deterioration of wood, for instance. It also requires a lot of moisture. But uh, mold is a general term for fungi. Okay. okay. And um, the, the rock fungi, obviously, the ones that grow in the thing you forgot in the refrigerator also produce odors. That's how you remember that you didn't um, put away that uh, meat or, or, or produce that's been there for several weeks. You know, we, let me get one more question. We, we talked a little yesterday about how, how the, the fungi or the molds digest food sources, and, and you've talked a little bit about that here, but I wonder if you could expand on, on that just a little bit more and how they actually go about digesting these sources. Yes, um, most don't have a digestive system the way we do. So we have to ingest food and then our digestive enzymes work in our stomach and intestine to break down the, the uh, larger molecules of nutrients such as starches, proteins, fats. Um, most, instead of that, digest 
before they ingest, in contrast to us. We ingest and digest. Molds put the enzymes that break down the large nutrients out into the substrate on which they are growing. So enzymes go out there. There are specific enzymes that digest proteins. There are enzymes that digest starches. There are enzymes that um, digest um, uh, fats of various kinds. And some molds are even able to digest cellulose, which we are not able to digest. The, the uh, bonds that hold that together are not available to our enzymes. So or we don't have the enzymes that are available to digest those bonds more clearly. So the, the enzymes that the molds put out are part of the, and can be part of the biological contaminants that could possibly have an effect on health because enzymes are proteins, and many proteins can be allergenic. That is, cause susceptible people, that is, those who, who have the genetic program to be allergic, to become allergic to the molds because they're reacting to the enzymes or other proteins that the molds put into the environment. Mm. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at healthyindoors.com. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. And our newest sponsors are RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. And AEML Labs, free FedEx shipping. Great pricing, same-day results, with no extra fee. Let's get back to our interview with Dr. Harry Amon. We've got uh, Dr. Amon, there was a, that news brief at the end. I don't know if you caught that, but um, I saw the article. I don't know if you got a chance to see that about the two bacteria that seem to be indicators uh, of water damage. Did you see anything on that? Um. Yeah, I have not seen that particular article, but uh, it certainly makes sense. I mean, IICRC has focused on certain kinds of water damage because it's likely to have bacteria in it, such as flooding. Uh, it's almost always considered black water. Um, but certainly uh, bacteria love the same kinds of food, and they like the same environment, or some bacteria like the same environment that molds do. Uh, we don't always know what all molds are in a contaminated water damaged building either, but um, we do know that uh, in the public health message underlying all that is that when you have water damage of any kind, you need to fix that problem, dry as quickly as possible, and then remove uh, contaminated materials. If if you can't dry it within 24 hours, most of the porous material needs to be discarded because uh, it will already have begun to, to grow both bacteria and mold. And Finnish researchers have done quite a lot of work on bacteria that grow indoors in, um, in damp buildings and have um, also made some connections with respiratory health problems. You know, mycobacterium is the, the genus in which you also find the tuberculosis bacterium. That's, I doubt it was the TB bacterium that was found in the home. But they are closely related. They're uh, bacteria that are hard to kill because of the protections that they have. And so um, it's certainly good news that people are beginning to also focus on the other microorganisms that 
grow in, in damp environments. Uh, doctor, we have a text question from a listener. A uh, listener would like to know, okay. do air purifiers with carbon filtration actually filter or remove MVOCs? Well, the, the activated carbon in the carbon filters, it does um, absorb a lot of odor and compounds and also things that we don't noticeably smell. Um, so um, until the, the carbon is saturated, yes, they will remove odors. Um, the, the thing, though, is that... Um, the odor is an indicator that you have microbial growth, and it's better to actually address the microbial growth by finding why materials are damp or wet, whether it's seepage from the ground or whether it's water intrusion in any other part of the house. After all, we know that there are only five vulnerable areas of the house or a building, and that's the roof, the walls, the windows, the doors, and the foundation. So... We have to find the water source and remedy it before we really can do an effective job of cleaning because if we don't address the water source, everything will come back. You know, you were also part of the Institute of Medicine Damp Indoor Spaces and Health Report, and I just wanted to kind of ask that you give our listeners a little overview of your thoughts on, you know, the importance of that report or uh, maybe... Uh, a little summary of, of your thoughts on, on that report. Well, I think I think the report was very good for the time. It's now almost 10 years since we stopped looking at references. I think we mostly cut off references in the year 2003. The book was published 2004. And there has been a great deal of new research, both in epidemiology and in toxicology since then. I think it was good in uh, alerting people to um, what the problems were and to, to try to address what the magnitude of the problem was. At the time, for the epidemiology, there were actually no attempts to quantify risk, for instance, and that has been done since then. Um, Bill Fisk, who was also on the committee, and his colleagues did a meta-analysis of those epidemiology studies in which they could determine actual signs of most moisture or mold. They eliminated those studies from consideration in the meta-analysis that only had air measurements of spores because we have come to realize that only air measurements really don't give us any information about value for exposure. Um, but they then were able to quantify risk, especially for asthma, and uh, they said in their study that about 22% of, of all asthma cases uh, are associated with living or working in damp indoor spaces. Um, and then there's been uh, an, another study by Fisk and different colleagues that has looked at other things besides asthma and, again, uh, has quantified the relationship. And then uh, Mark Mandel has also uh, published a study that, uh, that has looked at those. So, so those are new things since the IOM study. Uh, there NIOSH workers that um, were looking at the, the problem of asthma, and they found new asthma, that is, people who had been well did not have asthma until... They came to work in moldy buildings and developed asthma. So, you know, we, we didn't have that clear relationship back in, in 2003. Uh, that's become clear. And the other interesting thing about the, the NIOSH workers, uh, Gene Cox Ganser, Kate Christ, uh, Carol Rowell, uh, um, and, and many other workers, that um, uh, Dr. Park, that... Not only is there new asthma, but that there is non-allergic asthma, meaning that the people who are developing asthma are not atopic. They don't have the genetic program that makes them allergic, 
and yet they are developing diseases which present exactly like allergic asthma without the the immune markers that allergic mark, uh, allergic asthma has. So if it's not the an allergy that's causing this disease, then what is it? We have other choices that the toxic molecules, such as glucans or toxic molecules produced by both bacteria and mold, and we need further research on that. The other thing that's new since IOM, it, it, we already knew some of it uh, because some of the early work was done in 2000, 2002 by Gorney, that um, the Mold spores are probably not the principal means of exposure for people, but small particles that are produced by mold or that are fragments of mold are the primary agents of exposure. And Dr. David Miller has published work, um, I believe it's in 2010, in which he says that 70 to 90 percent of our exposure agents are fine particles below uh, uh, 2 microns. Yeah, I find and then that, there's oh, quite a few other researchers in Cincinnati and in Finland who have pursued that particular question about fine particles. Yeah, I find that fascinating. When, when we talked yesterday in, in preparation for the show, we, we talked about fine particles, and you explained to me, and please, well, maybe I'll just ask you this. Where do these fine particles come from? It seemed like they were a product of the growth of the fungi. It wasn't necessarily what I had always thought, which was a, a spore got broken up into small pieces or hyphae got broken up into small pieces. That's part of the fine particles, but I think the bigger part is just a natural part of the growth. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, well, as, as the mold is putting its little hyphal fingers out there into the substrate on which it's growing, the cells do break up and fragments are released. And finding fragments in samples is uh, considered an, an indicator of growth. Uh, and then, of course, when the, the mold dries, then the, the cells can rupture and release fragments as well. So part of the fine particle is fragments, and um, you can detect that by measuring glucan because the glucan is in the cell wall and it's in the fragments then. But there are other fine particles that are produced. And uh, as I said, this has been measured by a research group. Uh, Tina Repinen and, and her colleagues uh, have done, Klaus Willicke developed a, a sampler that allowed to, us to measure the particles. And some of those particles are, in fact, enzymes. So I mentioned earlier that when molds are growing on a surface, they put their digestive enzymes out there. They um, uh, <clears throat> they put out other particles that are not so clearly identified. But obviously, the fine particles are easily aerosolized; that it's coming off surfaces. If there's activity in the building, uh, uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems running, or the, the building moves because of traffic or in our part of the world because of the, the earth is shaking hmm. um, or because of activity of people in the building which caused the floors to move. You get re-entrainment of those fine particles and when people breathe the air that contains that part, those particles, those particles go very deep in the lung farther than the larger, in fact, spores do. They mainly deposit in the upper respiratory system. Let me go to Cliff. Do you want to go one more question, and then we may sure. have to go to the roundup here. Yeah, Doctor, you were part of the team that wrote the AIHA 2008 book, Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold, also known as the Green Book. What are your thoughts on the importance of that book? Well, um, uh, I have to admit a little bit of pride in knowing that it's uh, AIHA's bestseller. And I think part of the reason it is is because uh, the, the scientists who uh, wrote that first held a conference that was actually put on by ACGIH um, that asked practitioners in the field what they needed in order to do their work. And so we focused on practical applications. So. There are sections, for instance, which round up all the guidance there is 
and compare it aside from the more technical things about uh, what we know about health effects and what we know about uh, sampling for various things or how to, to do an investigation. So I think um, because of that practicality that um, and it, that's why it has been a popular publication and I think it has been useful to a lot of people. I would love to talk a little more about that, but I, I've got a couple other questions. We're running low on time. Can, are you? Do you have to run right out of here at uh, what would it be, ten o'clock Western, or can you stay a couple extra minutes? Um, I can stay a couple extra minutes. Okay, great. I, I wanted to go to a, a follow up on on that question about the Green Book because in Chapter One there was a section on case reports and clusters of idiopathic pulmonary hemorrhage, and I was I was hoping you could give our listeners a your thoughts on that on that section in the Green Book? Well, obviously that was um, uh, an outbreak that caused a great deal of focus on molds and especially Staphylococcus and its toxins. And um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm, I'm having a little bit of, of allergy here. So uh, since that time, I remember I was with the State Health Department when CDC put out a question, does anybody know anything about what they called idiopathic hemosiderosis? Um, hemosiderin is a breakdown product of hemoglobin, and that's what you find when lungs have been bleeding after, usually after they stop bleeding. Um, so um, this was investigated, as you well know, by CDC researchers, and Dr. George Dearborn and his colleagues have continued to look at that as well as have other researchers. We know a great deal more about it. We know, for instance, that there's um, uh, an enzyme, hemolysin, which is uh, a product of stachybotrys that is part of the process of causing infants' lungs to bleed. There have been other incidents of this. I'm not sure. I may have called them clusters in the Green Book, but um, they at least were uh, specific exposures in which stachybotrys was found to be associated or, in one case at least, to be actually found in the lung of the child who had the bleeding. So we know a great deal more about that now. Um, I think it still warrants attention, and it's the basis of why AIHA back in 2006 in the field guide said you have to do hazard assessment when you find uh, Stachybotrys chartarum or you find the infectious molds in a building and you have to do that hazard assessment immediately. And that's a burden for the industrial hygienist. You know, I, uh, Dr. Wiles, I think that's all very important. And the, the issue you mentioned first about lead and that we know how to control it, we know how to control dampness in buildings, too. We have the information. We can, even in our climate, to build buildings that are dry and the from a public health point of view, we know enough about the relationship between health and mold and bacteria that grow as a result of water. Um, do we really have do we have good data on that? That, that there is a, a cause and effect of being. I mean, I know if I were to live in a house which is moldy, moldy, moldy from day one, and I live in there for twenty years, that can't be good for me. I know that. Do we have do we have data on somebody who lived in a house, let's say for a year, they neglected a problem, a leaking roof, a leaking basement, a leaking crawl space. Do we have data on that? Of course we do. We do. Of course we do. The epidemiologic studies relate to that. I don't we also we also have intervention studies in which we had people who were living in moldy dwellings and the water problem was solved and they were sufficiently clean and they got better. Just as we have data on fine particles from combustion in the ambient air, where the Clean Air Act has reduced the number of, and I say it's clearly, deaths from air pollution that, uh, you know, with very good studies. So we have the data and we have enough data from the public health point of view to say that people should not live and work in damp and moldy buildings, and we can do something about it by prevention. 
I agree with you 100%, and I uh, thank you for mentioning that, uh, that again. The surface area of small particles, like you said, it's, it's, it's astronomical. Yes, of course. It's unbelievable, and I have, I have done that a, a hundred, a thousand times in my classes. I took one uh, cubic centimeter, and I cut it into one micrometer particle. <laughs> and then the surface area goes up. And it's just unbelievable. Yeah, EPA did on, on a calculation on clean diesel exhaust, the clean diesel soot. Uh, right. one, one gram of the clean diesel soot that is divided into 0.2 micron particles, which is what, it con what the average that is. That sounds about right, yes. It's 90 meters square. Yep, that's a tennis court, kind of. Yes, wow. yes it is. In, in round numbers, yeah. I know, it is unbelievable. People don't realize this. And now all of a sudden, you have a filter in the air. Yes. You have a charcoal filter in the air. Uh, that can, yeah, they, they can absorb anything uh, you want, yes. And you mentioned that. And I think that is one of the things we got to realize and appreciate. Uh, that um, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the problem with something we don't see. All right, you, know, you can't see a 0.5 micron particle unless you know in a in a in a in a, in a light stream. Yeah. Yeah. Doc, Dieter, Doctor Wow, you don't see the uh, particle, but you see the interaction of the particle with light, and that right. when it glows, I'm sure. Yes. I'm sure you took but anyway, talk for I think, a week. <laughs> I think we touched on a couple of very important um, uh, topics here uh, that, we, that we need more information on it, and uh, we should do it. Yes, I agree with you. Well, you know, it, it, I don't think it's useful to say go to the scientific literature because the scientific literature is huge, and it's very difficult to, to keep up with all of that. However, things like, the uh, ACGIH book back in 99, the, the uh, uh, Institute of Medicine book, the uh, Green book, and the WHO guidance on um, inter-air quality, dampness, and mold summarize that information. Of course, you know, it's not at the cutting edge of what's going on today because it's always a couple of years behind due to publication time. But I think that those sources are really pretty reliable for um, for the practitioner and indirect. Of course, I, uh, CRC also has the 520 and the 500 standards and have information there that's very useful. So I think practitioners do need to be aware of that. I would not just recommend going on the, the Internet and typing mold because you will get... Um, Opinions of all kinds that um, range from useless to sometimes valuable. But I think looking at these kind of publications does help the practitioner to, to focus in. Uh, I've been teaching in a healthy building course here in Seattle for several years now that's meant for, for builders and for uh, the people who actually do the building, so the carpenters and, and so on. The architects and engineers, but also and contractors and and building professionals. Um, we in my county here in Washington have also done a healthy building course that I've participated in, which is for volunteers who will then go to uh, inspect housing on uh, title uh, well whatever title eight uh, low income housing, so that we get a better handle and are able. To address the underlying problems and make those those houses safe for occupancy. So I think there is good information out there. You just have to be a little bit careful about on what information you rely on. Uh, doctor, what's the difference if there is one between a risk assessment and a hazard evaluation? Yeah, you know, the hazard evaluation, which is what AIHA recommends when you find certain kinds of microbes in a building, is an, something that's to the particular instance, the particular building. So you find this contamination and you have to evaluate whether there is a hazard to the occupant, which means you have to 
look to see how much contamination there is, uh, what it is, and where it is, whether it can be distributed widely through the building or just uh, be located in a particular place. Uh, you also have to evaluate who is there because people differ tremendously in their susceptibility to different agents. So if you have someone with cystic fibrosis, you may have to remove that person immediately because they could be in the hospital the next day. Uh, but then there are people who are, you know, who are relatively healthy and not so likely to, to be uh, um, the subject of the hazard. And then you make the decision, what do I do here? Um, do I isolate the area of contamination? Can I isolate the area of contamination? Do I need to remove people from the area where it is? Do I need, uh, in the extreme, to remove people from the building? And that is a risk management process that's immediate to the specific instance. Risk assessment is generally used for regulatory purposes or for public health purposes. And it's a much more intensive process you're trying to say that an exposure can be allowed to people who you don't know. So you, that, that exposure can be allowed to a population of people, which includes very vulnerable as well as very robust people. So you really have to do a very deep assessment of the available science, and you have to figure out what the exposure agents are. And I use the plural intensity. Uh, intentionally because that's one of the issues with air pollution is that we have a hard time identifying everything that people breathe. Then you have to find out if you know a particular agent, the critical effect, what occurs at the lowest level of exposure, what harm occurs in, and since I'm a toxicologist, we're li looking at animals in the most susceptible research animals. And then to try to do on a dose response assessment which identifies a no effect level as well as a lowest effect level. And then apply a number of things to transcribe that information to humans. Remember that you're trying to say that something is quote unquote safe. And that requires a very intensive process. We have not been able to do the studies that are required for mold toxins, for instance, that allow us to say, this much exposure is okay. That's, you know, that's, I'm glad Cliff got to that question because I think that's a very important one for our listeners. We could do this all day. I don't want to keep you too long, but let's just finish here if I could with, uh, is there anything that you'd like to add? Anything, obviously we missed things, but before we leave for this session, is there anything you'd like to add? Well, there's a, a whole world of, of things that I would like to emphasize again, that we do have the knowledge to keep buildings dry and clean from a public health perspective. And I've been now in public health since 1984 when I was working at EPA and then for the state, and I continue to be a public health toxicologist. We know how to do prevention in this instance. We do need the research because we need to understand the health issues that arise when people live or work in moldy spaces. And um, that becomes part of our prevention strategy. But the underlying thing, preventing moisture damage, we know about that and we need to impl implement it. Well, thank you for that. And, and thanks so much again for joining us. And I hope we can get you back in the future because there is a lot more we could talk about. I enjoyed this very much, too. Thank you. All right. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.